Welcome to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our work to make Christ known among the nations, I encourage you to go to traincpe.org. And to discover more about our radio ministry, go to breadoflifeboise.org. If you have your Bibles handy, go to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, and buckle up for a sobering look into God's Word. I think the best way to introduce our message this morning is to consider the fact that we're not always good at communicating the gospel to others, in part because we don't know how to be truly honest with others. To be honest with a person, you first have to have a real relationship with them where you can convince them that you see them for who they are and that you still like them. But then you're going to need the courage to tell them the truth of how God sees them for who they are. And here's a hint. It's not a pretty picture. We recall now that with hammer blows to the conscience, Paul has exposed throughout what he's written so far the sin of those he's speaking to, and he's attempted to speak to everyone that he can think of. He has addressed the idol-worshiping pagan in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. There he's demonstrated that when they turned away from worshiping the true God to worship idols, their idols began to degenerate from the images of human beings to the images of beasts to ultimately the images of slithering things. And in the same way that their idols degenerated, so did their morality. And their morality ultimately led them to a place in which they were given over to beastliness and to a slithering depravity. They had suppressed the knowledge of God in the pursuit of their own unrighteous acts. Actually, take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 1. The outcome of this collapse into sin is given to us in verses 28 through 32 of Romans 1. Here's what we read. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. This is where Paul has brought them as he's been exposing the degeneration of the idol worshiper. But then Paul turns his attention and his address in chapter 2 to the moralistic Gentile. And they too, he tells them, are guilty and under the judgment of God. And finally, Paul turns to the religious Jew and tells them that they as well are under God's judgment because of sin and Along the way, they've offered their various protests and they've offered their various rebuttals. Paul has answered each of the protests, all the while keeping tension on this conviction, keeping a pointed reference point to this pronouncement that all of them are in sin and all of them are under judgment. He's not given in to their protests. He's not been distracted from the point that he's attempting to make. It's necessary for them that they see their hopeless situation if they're to turn to the gospel of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is always the case. When you're dialoguing with a person in order to bring them to the gospel, 
the first thing you need to do is you need to bring them before a holy God. You need to bring them in the presence of God, a God who hates sin, a God who is a powerful creator, the creator of all things. Actually, this pattern that we should have in our dialogue with lost individuals is the pattern that Paul is introducing us to because Paul is an evangelist and he's simply showing us and he's simply, in a sense, preparing the Romans for the manner and very way in which he wants to bring the gospel to them and with them bring the gospel to others. He's showing us his evangelistic heart and the message that he's been bringing to individuals and how it is that he's brought that to individuals. And you'll see in this dialogue with him that Paul starts with God and he introduces to the pagan and he brings in the reference of the conversation, he references them to God himself. Look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. Here's what he says. What may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Paul then, as he's presenting them to God, goes on to present to them that this is the God that was to be worshipped, and this is the God who is to be glorified by him, by his creatures, and this is the God who is expressing himself, and speaking to them, and this is the God whose communication and knowledge they are suppressing, and trying to put from their minds in order that they might pursue their own unrighteousness. The point I want to simply make here is that if you're going to dialogue with individuals and you're going to bring them to the need of their salvation, you have to bring them first into the presence of God. When we're sharing our faith with people overseas or when we're training individuals and in, in how to share their faith, we encourage them that this is to be a conversation, it's to be a dialogue. We want them to know that God is up ahead of them. The Spirit is already working in that person's life. The Spirit is already at work convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment, and as a result, there's a conversation they can have with them. But the conversation should begin with a conversation about God. Ask them questions like, do you believe in God? What do you think God is like? How would you describe God to an individual who had no knowledge of God? If they say no, was there a time in your life when you thought there was a God? What did you think of God at that point in time? Why did you stop believing in him? Are there times still today in which you think maybe there is a God? What are those moments like? What's happening in your life when you have those thoughts? What comes to your mind? What do you think about when you consider the possibility that you could be wrong and there is a God and you bring God into the presence and you bring God into the conversation? Ask them questions like, do you believe God loves you? Ask them in your own life, how have you personally experienced that love? Can you think of your own story where you have thought as a conclusion of that experience or that moment in your life that God loved you? What was happening then? You let them talk to you. You listen to them. Bringing God as a consideration into the conversation and you're turning up the light and as you turn up the light of God's presence, you know what happens is they begin to recognize their own sin and that's where Paul pivots to. He starts with God but then he he pivots in the conversation to speak to them about their sin. It's essential so that a person would recognize in the presence of God and then recognize their sin in the presence of God that, that God is just, that God is true, that everything their conscience has been telling them that they've been trying to ignore is also true. It's, it's important for them to understand this so that they begin to see not only their sins and the judgment of their sin, but they begin to see and recognize that they have no answers in themselves for their sins. That's what Paul has been doing through this whole section that we've been looking in, coming to the point we're coming to now. The moralist and the religionist were indignant 
at the description. They had this sense of indignation that was stirred within them as they were reading and considering the expression of what the pagan does in his degraded morality. And they think of themselves as being better, but then they didn't know that Paul was going to turn the tables on them and point out to them their own sinfulness. But that's exactly what he's done. He's done it very convincingly. And at every protest, he's given a strong answer without removing from them the sense of God's judgment that they themselves are facing. And at this point in the conversation, with all the rebuttals being put aside, they've conceded. They've been silenced before Paul. They've recognized their sin. They've recognized their deserving of judgment and justice. And they have no more answers for themselves. So we might think at this point in time, the nice thing for Paul to do, is now that he's kicked them down into the dirt, is to give a hand to pick them back up and begin telling them the gospel and give them some encouragement. And it's now time to pivot into the good news because they have been willing to acknowledge now by their very silence There's a silent consent that what he's saying is true. They're sinners. They're all sinners. The Jew is a sinner. The moralistic Gentile is a sinner. These idolaters are sinners as well. And Well, we're all facing some manner of judgment from God. Now we'd say, okay, Paul, time to move on and press on to some heartier and lively conversation and hopeful conversation to them. But now that they're in the ground, Paul doesn't reach down to pick them up grabs a shovel and he begins digging a grave alongside of them so he can throw them into it. He doesn't ease up at all. He presses even further into what he said to them. He brings them all the way down. Jesus said, unless the seed falls in the ground and dies, it remains alone. And Paul has opened up the point now and he's going to drop the seed in and he's going to call them into death and he's going to cover them over under this condemnation. And so he has one more thing he needs to say to them. One more thing that he needs to press upon them. He's going to press them in even further so that what he says now in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 20, what he says to them now is actually, if you could imagine, worse than what he said as he followed the degeneration of the idolater, the pagan idolater. And he's going to put this label upon them, themselves. Not only have they acknowledged their sin, not only have they acknowledged now that their sin deserves judgment, but now he's going to show them that their sin is of the same quality the same substance as that which he's talked about in the first chapter and even worse. So let's have our Bibles open now to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 21. Our focus will be on 9 through 20. What then, Paul asked, now that they've considered and he's answered all the rebuttals and they've come with all their questions and they've come with their questions. Well, what's the good and what's the advantage of being a Jew? They've come up with other questions, you know, God, what if my unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God? How can God be just in condemning me? And they've come up with all these questions, which he's answered very forcefully. Now Paul asks a question, what then? What now do we conclude? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They are all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. 
the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, is what we'll read in verse 21. You know, this morning I, was, I went around and took some photos of different sayings that have inspired us and we've put in calligraphy or they've been crotch-stitched and they've put in different places in our house. I've got one plaque that was made for us, given to me this last couple Christmases ago. It uh, represents a song that our family used to sing. The opening line was, Be present at our table, Lord, be here and everywhere adored. Another one of the things I found over our piano is a, this verse, Walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a really beautiful cross stitch right over my, my, my piano. Another little section there's painted on glass, a wonderful little old saying, and it says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. A great, great things that you... Nobody has ever put the passage we have just read into cross stitch. <laughs> it's not hanging in any house. It's not hanging over any piano. Nobody goes to it for inspiration or encouragement. <laughs> you know, it hasn't made it into the hall of fame of inspirational verses. There's not even a way to condense it into a ditty that would make you, you know, somehow put it down and want to remember it. It's not being memed anywhere. You'll never find a meme online of this passage of scripture. And yet to bring somebody to the good news, we have to take them down this dark passage so they can come into the light. You've been listening to The Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and The Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our ministry, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.